when we read the Bible and teachers of the Bible, preachers of the Bible, um, you should have a desire every time you open the Bible to read it correctly, to read it and glean from it exactly what God intended when he divinely inspired these words. Passages like the ones we're about to get into in the book of Judges, um, there's always this temptation to pull things from way out in left field, which means, if you don't know what that expression means, (laughs) um, stuff that's kind of out there, that's not exactly straightforward, and to try and push it into the text to make it sound cooler than maybe you think it actually does when you read it for the first time. Um, I said a few weeks ago that the book of Judges will challenge your incorrect thinking if you think that the Bible is boring. Um, (laughs) The Bible is certainly not boring, and again, you're going to see that tonight as we read these verses. Um, But like I said, when you open the Bible, it should be your goal to read it accurately, to be faithful to the meaning that God has given it. So the stories of these judges, the first three judges we're looking at tonight, it could be very easy to take what the Bible says and to read a bunch of cool, motivational stuff into it and, and, and moral things and character and just all of these really awesome motivational type things, but we're not going to do that because as I said last week, everything in the book has to be, written, uh, has to be read sorry, in line with the introductions, the two introductions that we dealt with the first two weeks. We have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. We have to interpret Scripture by Scripture. So we're going to look at these verses, Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. We're going to read through chapter 3 to verse 31. We're going to break it up. Um, but the goal of tonight is to be faithful to what the text says. To not try and make it say something different. To not try and make it feel different. I want you to see through these verses that we're going to read God's compassionate character. I want you to see that God's compassion for His people is on display through these first three judges of the book. I'm going to go ahead and give you point number one. I want you to live like you believe God reigns. It's no secret that God is ruling and God is reigning if you read the Bible. If, if you have read the pages of Scripture, you've read over and over where it says the Lord reigns, the Lord rules. He sits enthroned in the heavens. He's ruling over the heavens and the earth over and over and over again. We're going to see here as we read this narrative of the first judge, Othniel, that that the Lord reigns. I told you guys that God is still the main character of the story in the book of Judges. That we're going to read about a lot of judges, we're going to read about a lot of interesting characters, but you cannot lose sight of what God is doing 
Because it's really easy to read about these people and to get lost in these people and what they're doing and to even argue about, well, did they do the right thing? Did they do the wrong thing? Was these, were these the right motivations? Should this judge have done that? Was he a good judge? Was he a bad? All of these things, you can get lost talking about those things if you don't focus on the activity of God. What is, what is God doing in the pages of Scripture? So, of course, God is ruling and reigning over everything, and he always will. We're going to see that here, but I want you to to live like you believe that. So if you confess, yes, God is ruling, God is reigning, then your life should match up with what you're professing with your mouth. So let's look here. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7, we'll read through verse 11. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It shouldn't have been a surprise to you that that was the first thing we read. If you've been paying attention, we're going to read that a lot. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, that God, Asheroth, it's the same one that we talked about last week, even though it's spelled differently in different places. Um... Just know that. It's the same one. Ashtaroth, Ashtaroth, Asheroth, whatever. It's, this, it's, this, it's referencing the same God. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. You can see. God's compassion for his people based on the way that he reigns over them. In the ways of God, in in the activity of God, you can see the compassion for his people. Now, Othniel is the first major judge to be mentioned in the book. We already met him back in chapter 1, and the details about his life are few. We, We don't get a lot of information about his life. Now, some people will say he's the best judge. They'll say he, he was the most faithful. He was the best. He was the first major judge to be mentioned. He's the best. It's very straightforward. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. Bam, bam, everything's great, so he's the best judge. I don't know. We're not going to really get into that, who the best judge is or not. But the point of this, of Othniel, is that his quick story, it shows several components of the, the narratives of these judges that we need to be looking for each time we read about a judge. So these, here, here are the seven basic components to the activity of, of a judge or what God is doing through the, through the judges. The first thing is that Israel does evil. And the next thing is that God sells them into the hand of the enemy. Third, Israel cries out to God. Fourth, God raises a judge. Fifth, the judge delivers Israel. Six, the land has rest. And seven, the judge dies. One through seven. Now, not all of these narratives 
include all seven of these things. And actually, as they go on and on, you see fewer and fewer of the major judges. And the decline of these seven components, it also happens in line with the decline of Israel. It's getting further and further away of what God intended. So we have seven components here in the story of Othniel, and here they are. Israel serves Baal. That's the first one. They, they turn their backs on God. They forget God. They serve Baal. And what does God do? He gives them over to Kashan Rishathim. <clears throat> Next thing is that Israel cries out to God in desperation. And then God moves in compassion. And he raises up a judge. He raises up Othniel. And then Othniel delivers them from the evil king. And the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel died. So the first thing that you see here in the story of this judge is that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The summary statement that we called. That's what we called it. The summary statement of judges. They forgot. That's what the Bible says. They, they forgot their God. And they served Baal and Asheroth. Well, oftentimes, and maybe you know this, whenever the Old Testament uses the, the language of forgot and remembered, it doesn't actually mean they forgot as in it was out of their minds like, like you forgot to grab your phone before you left your house or you forgot something like that. It's not exactly what is being communicated here. Uh, it's used to describe unfaithfulness or faithfulness. So right now what you're seeing is that they were unfaithful because they forgot. So an example of this is, is when God remembered the covenant that he made with Noah, and then he caused the waters of the flood to subside. It's not communicating that God forgot about the covenant. It's not like God was like, oh yeah, I forgot that a few days ago I said that, and now I'm remembering. It's not what's happening. What's being communicated is that God is faithful to keep his word. When it says he remembered, it's saying he stayed faithful to his word. And he acted according to his covenant. So the Israelites, they, they haven't forgotten about God in the sense of they don't know who he is anymore. Or they, have just, they just don't think of him like that anymore. What, what it's saying is that they are being unfaithful to God. They are serving these false gods. The Baals and the Asheroths. You know, we talked about these gods last week, the ones that... They would go to the temple and they would have sex with the cult prostitutes in order to make it rain and to have fertility. This is the same gods that we're talking about. They, they forgot. They were unfaithful to Yahweh and they were then serving these false gods. They're committing idolatry. They're doing the things that God hates. And of course, how does God respond? Well, we knew to see this. We knew to look for this because of the two introductions. God gets angry. And he hands them over. He sells them into the hands of the enemies. He gave them over to the king of Moab because of their unfaithfulness. Now, the hatred that God has for idolatry is obvious here. And it's going to be obvious. It's going to be reoccurring in all of the narratives. So I'm not going to keep making the point. I'm not going to keep on building it into the sermon. You just need to know that God hates idolatry. You've you got to get that, and you have to understand that. And, if, you, and you, if your heart is full of idols and you're chasing after idols, then, then you need to repent. You need to deal with that first before we get into any of this other stuff we're going to be talking about. 
You just need to understand that week after week when Israel is committing idolatry, that you have to hate that sin. You have to rid yourself of your idols. So God's angry because of this, and he weakens Israel, and he strengthens a pagan nation to subdue them. And look, there's something really interesting about the name of this pagan king, okay? Kishan Rishathim. So something really cool that I, I think is interesting about the book of Judges is that a lot of times, whenever you pay attention to what it, it means in the original language, you can see the humor of the author, which in turn means the humor of God. In Israel, what they would do is, is they would retell these stories of the, the rescuers, the the deliverers, the saviors, saving them from the hand of these evil kings. And, and they, would, they would rejoice over these stories. They would essentially make fun of the pagans. And you'll see this a couple times tonight. But here's one way that they would kind of take jabs at these pagans. Kishan Rishathim, what that means is essentially king double wickedness. And if you notice, it, it's partnered with, it says Kishan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. It says it just like that twice. Mesopotamia essentially is, is meaning land of double rivers. So what they're saying is king double wickedness of the land of double rivers. Right? So they're just, they're just like ways for them to remember. They're just saying he's, he is a wicked, wicked king. So as they're recounting these stories, there's going to be several things like this that we'll see. But we have this guy that we're going to just call king double wickedness because he's, he's wicked. And they're ridiculing this king intentionally. So God, he gives Israel over to king double wickedness. And Israel begins to serve him. And you can see the irony here where when Israel decides to serve the pagan gods, God says, okay, well you're also going to serve the pagan kings. You're going to serve their gods. And he hands them over. This is hand of discipline, of course, like we've discussed. So the people of Israel, of course, they cry out to the Lord. They're groaning because of this oppression. No evidence of repentance. No evidence of real repentance here. They're groaning in their misery because they do not enjoy what's going on. They're asking God to help them, to set them free. And God does not enjoy seeing his people suffer. So he does something about it. He raises up a judge, a deliverer who saves them. This Othniel, this man that we met back in chapter 1. It says the spirit of God was upon Othniel. And he judged Israel. He saved them from their oppressors. And then the land had rest for 40 years. Rest means peace. No wars. Things were good. That's what that means. And then Othniel died. I want to make sure that you see exactly what's going on in these verses. Israel does evil. God takes action. He did exactly what he promised he would do. He continues to do so over and over and over again. He's faithful to his word. He gives them over to the enemies. And he has them serve these pagan gods. God is responsible for this. God is the one behind it. Our sovereign, ruling, and reigning God is the one behind this activity. 
Again, it's not that all of a sudden Israel gets really weak and this nation gets really strong. It's not some natural cause and event type of thing. This is God doing what he said he was going to do. This is God's sovereign activity. This is not karma. This is not outside of God's control. He's controlling it. He's doing it. So he sells them over. And then the same God that hands them over to their enemies and disciplines them, is the same God who is moved to compassion for his people. You understand? He he wasn't waiting on some kind of genuineness from their hearts. They were crying out in agony and misery, and God essentially says, "My, my love for you and my compassion for you, I can't take this anymore, so here's a Savior. Here's a rescuer, because I love you, because you're my chosen people. And so he sends them a savior to rescue them from their wickedness when they haven't even changed, when their hearts haven't even changed. He's doing this. So people in the ancient Near East... They understood this. They understood something that seems to be forgotten or misunderstood even by a lot of Christians today. They understood that God is in control. And I'm not even just talking about Israel. I'm talking about people, different cultures. They, they, there are several accounts. There's, there's one we're going to get to, but back in Judges chapter 1, even the pagan king, the one who got his thumbs and big toes cut off, what did he say? He said, as I have done, so God has, re- he, so Yahweh, so God of Israel has repaid me. This is a pagan. And he's saying, yeah, that God is behind it. He did this. He's the one. So these people, they just understood this. They, they, didn't, they didn't argue about it. There wasn't any doubt in their minds that God was behind everything. That God is powerful, that he has the power to do whatever he wills, and he will do whatever he wants, because he's God. So they saw a direct connection between their current situation and the hand of God. So when blessing was upon them, God blessed them. God was the one. It was God's hand. God was the one blessing them. They understood it, that it was God's doing. When times were hard, same thing. God, God was the one behind it. God, they would say, what's going on? Why are you doing this? They understood. They wouldn't look to themselves or anything like that. They, wouldn't look. they weren't thinking about karma. They just understood that God was active. He was the one behind history. Here's an example. Pastor Elliot actually just used this in his sermon this weekend. If you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it because it was amazing. Um, But the story of Joseph, right? Joseph, back in Genesis, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And what does Joseph say in Genesis 45, 8? He says, so it was not you who sent me here. He's looking at his brothers, the ones, listen, the ones who sold him into slavery, the ones who did the action, who put him in the pit, who pulled him out, who gave him away to the people, who sent him off. He looks at these people and he says, it wasn't you who did this. It wasn't you who sent me here, but God. 
God has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He understands God did this. This is God's hand. This is God's activity. Look, when Joseph was in prison in Egypt because he was falsely accused of all of this nonsense, he didn't waste any time cursing God. Understand? He, he, didn't, he didn't waste any time thinking about, well, how could this have happened? And, oh, I can't wait to get revenge on my brothers. And I can't, I, I, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. He, he, okay, God, what's going on? Like, he was humble. He humbled himself and he understands that it's God's hand. He didn't have a reason. You understand? Like, God didn't, he didn't understand everything until the end of it. He didn't know that his family was going to show up. He didn't know if they were still alive. But the point is, he understood that it was God's hand. That God was behind it. That he's controlling everything. So even in prison, even through all the hard times, he kept his faith in God. He didn't doubt. He stayed humble. He stayed obedient because he knew that God was in control of the situation and that he could keep trusting God. So sometimes today, even among the church, people who profess faith in Christ fail to recognize and see God's activity in their lives. So, I mean, ask yourself, are you, are you failing to see God's hand in your life? Are, are you thinking about your life and the things that are going on, and are you just not even making a connection between God's sovereign hand and your life? I've got some dear friends, very, very close friends, who are passionate for biblical doctrine. They are just zealous and and passionate for good doctrine. And and that's a great thing. They love to talk about God's sovereignty and Reformed theology and biblical hermeneutics and all of it. They love to talk about it. And and it's like I do too. It's fun. I enjoy talking about these things. But there's a problem with my friends. And I think that a lot of people in the church have this problem, unfortunately. And the problem is that their knowledge and their beliefs, they fail to translate over to real life. In other words, they struggle to live like what they believe is true. They'll say, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things, and he is always good, and we can always trust him because he is always working for our good. They can say these things. But then when life gets difficult, it's, why, God? How could you do this to me, God? I don't understand. What did I do to deserve this, God? What's going on, God? Maybe you know theology well. Maybe you've been raised in great churches like this one. Maybe if you took a test on theology, you'd get 100%. If your knowledge doesn't translate over to real life, then your knowledge is for nothing. So listen, if you confess that God is sovereign, and you say that you believe that God is sovereign and God is 
good and he is just and he is right and you sing the songs and you, and you praise him in your prayers for all these things, then you need to live like that is true. You need to look at the way that you're living. Think about how you respond when life isn't going the way you want it to go. What are some things that you say? What are some things that you think? Do you accuse God of things? Do you ask him where is he? Do you wonder why things are happening? Or, along with your professions, do you say, God, you are behind this. You are always good. I don't understand why something is happening, but I'm going to keep trusting you. You can see God's activity in the story, that God's behind it. And, and when you open the Bible, you have, you have to see that. And when you think about history, you need to see that. When you think about your life, you need to see God's sovereignty. God is undeniably sovereign. God's behind the activity in the judges, like I just said, in scripture, in history. So when you open the Bible, you have to read it with that lens. When you're reading something in the Bible, you're like, well, this, I don't want to, you need to you say, okay, God is in control. He is sovereign. And read it through that lens. When you Look at history. Don't allow yourself to go, God, you must have lost control here. You, what's going on? How could you let this happen? How could you do this? How could you, you're, you're throwing accusations at God. You need to read it through the lens of, God, you are ruling and you are reigning. And when you look at your own life, when you think about your day, when you think about the season and situation that you're in, it has to be through the lens of God, you are sitting on your throne. No one will knock you down from that throne. You will be reigning from your throne for all time. And that's it. God is behind things. He, he, it's his activity. So look, have you put your trust in Jesus? I pray that you have. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then your repentance and your faith, it's a gift from God. God's behind that. 2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God will grant repentance. So if you've repented and put your trust in Jesus, because God granted it to you. So when you're praying for lost people, which we all should be, you should be praying, God, will you please Grant them repentance. As your word says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your very salvation is a gift from God. So even when you think about when you first professed faith in Jesus? You need to think about it with this lens that God is ruling, God is reigning, and your faith is a gift. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When life is going well, and I, I, 
Of course, I pray that life is going well for everyone. But when life is going well, you need to understand that it is only because of God's hand of blessing. When, when, you, when you look around your life and you're just like, oh, I just, my, I, it's so good. Great friends, great family, like everything's going well. Do you understand that God's word says that it's only happening because God is giving it to you? James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So God's behind the good. When life is difficult, God has not lost control. We've talked about this many times. There may be many reasons why God is walking you through hard times. It could be discipline because of your sin. God may be bringing about holiness in your life because of your pattern of sin and his hand of discipline on your life because he loves you, he disciplines you. We talked about this last week. 2 Corinthians 12, we see that God gave Paul the thorn in his flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. He was going through something difficult, and he recognized it as this is God's hand because he's keeping me from being arrogant. You understand that Paul had something really painful going on. We don't know exactly what it was, but it, it was tough. It was not good. And he even looked at that through the lens of God is reigning and said, God, why are you doing this? And, and he realizes, God, you're doing this so that I do not get arrogant. And Jesus responds, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul recognizes through the grace of God that the difficulty he's walking through, God is putting him through it. It's God's hand. It's God's activity. And he's doing it so that he can learn how to be completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit rather than his own strength. Do you see where may, maybe you and I would be inclined to say, God, why are you doing this? What in the world are you doing? This sucks. Can you please take this away? When Paul says, God's ruling, God's reigning, he's doing this so that I stay humble and so that I can learn to depend on him. Do you see the difference between the two? I hope that you do. So the point is this. You need to believe that God is ruling and reigning. You need to live like what you believe is true. So if, if you struggle with this, if you are prone to worry and anxiety and accusing God of things, and I'm, I just, I'm just imploring you to understand that God has not lost control. God is ruling and God is reigning. And you need to respond to the situation biblically. And every time you approach Scripture, you need to read it with this lens so we've seen here what God is doing, that God's hand is behind these things in, in the narrative of, of Othniel. And now we're going to look at Ehud. All right, so uh, Othniel's narrative has set the stage for all the following judges. And we're going to start here with this Ehud story. And you're going to continue to see God's sovereign activity through this account. And I'm sure by the end of this, you're going to be amazed by God's compassion Right? Because overall, what I want you to see is God's compassion and the way he deals with you. So God is sovereign over your life. He's in control. He's behind everything. And in, in all of God's activity towards you, you can see his compassion. Whether it's blessing, whether it's discipline, salvation, of course. Whatever is going on, you can see God has compassion for his people. And you're going to continue to see that here in Ehud's story. 
Ehud happens to be my favorite of the major judges. I love this story. Now again, prepare yourself because if you've never read this story, you're going to go, whoa, I didn't know that anything like that was in the Bible. It's here and it's not boring, okay? Here we go. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12, it says this. And the people of Israel, what does it say? What do you guys think? Did you already look down? What do they do? Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, what what does he do? He strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're seeing the components. You're seeing these things. It's already taking place. He gathered, Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, to, to Eglon, uh, I'm sorry, sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that's like, Uh, 18 inches or something like that, I think. Did I read that right? Yeah, 18 inches. Uh, He bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I told you. Verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Anybody brave enough to say, I had no clue that was in there? Did everybody know that was in there? Okay, yeah, I'm telling you guys. (laughs) That excites me. I'm glad. Verse uh, 24, no, no, 23. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Dudes thought he was going to the bathroom. That's what that means. And they waited till they were embarrassed. I don't know how long that is, but like, if you've ever, I don't know, if you've ever been somewhere and your friend goes to the bathroom and you're like, oh, it's been like 30 minutes and you start to feel embarrassed, like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what these guys are, they're like, King, how long is it going to take you? Man, I don't know. They're embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sierra. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went 
down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's clap, clap for Eglon. That's awesome. Here's point two. I want you to be grateful for God's involvement in your life. So here's what I mean. I'll explain. Now, of course, this begins with Israel doing evil. What is God? I'm sorry, doing evil in uh, God's sight. The evil of Israel is mentioned twice in the opening verse, showing us that it's very evil. It's worse than the last time because what did we read? Last week, that after the death of a judge, what happens? They get worse and worse and worse. So what does God do? Strengthens Eglon. He gathers the pagans. They take the city of Palms, which is Jericho, and they serve Eglon for 18 years. All right? Now, again, there's this this, uh, stuff about the Hebrew we have to talk about. All right? I think this is funny. Eglon is actually a combination of words that mean little calf. And to serve can also mean to worship. So the statement can also be read, Israel worshipped the little calf. And that's referencing Exodus 32, the worship of the golden calf. So Israel, they cry out to the Lord. God raises up Ehud, a Benjaminite, the son of Jerah, a left-handed man. Now there's a lot of speculation, and I think that we have a good answer. One of these uh, pieces of speculation is that he had a crippled Uh, right hand, so he had to use his left hand, maybe. But it's possible that Ehud was specially trained for war, that this dude was special ops. And I think this is correct. Because Judges, chapter 20, verse 16, talks about the people of Benjamin, and it says, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So I think that Ehud is part of this. Uh, meaning not that they just found left-handed people, but that they trained them to be, what's it called, ambidextrous, both hands. They're these special soldiers. They can use both their hands. So he was trained to use his left hand. Uh, you know, he, he Also, his blade goes to his right thigh. Most people back then, just like today, are right-handed. How many right-handers in here? Yeah, most of us, that's always how it works, right? So back then, most people were right-handed. So if you have a sword on your hip, And you're right-handed, which hip is it going to be on? Other side. His is on his right hip. Okay? Now, something else that's funny about the story is that uh, Eglon's servants and guards are just stupid. Okay? They're just dumb. And so, uh, Ehud walks in, and they check his, his, uh, his, his left hip for his sword or whatever. Nothing's there. So, they're like, oh, you must be good. Go ahead. They didn't check his other hip because they just assumed that he's right-handed. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, okay. Uh, Israel, you know, he sent, they send Eglon a tribute. This is some kind of tax they have to give because uh, they're subdued by this king. So he has to go and deliver this tax, this gift or whatever to the evil king. He makes this weapon uh, that he, you know, he can conceal. Now, this is kind of funny, too. Edges, it says it's a double-edged sword. The word for edge can also mean mouth. So there's this sword with two mouths. Two mouths can eat more than one mouth, and there's this fat king called the little calf, and the sword with two mouths ends up killing the fat king, 
you can see what we're, we're on top. Does that make sense? The, like the, the literary stuff here that the author is doing. So the little calf who oppresses Israel is a fat cow that's ready to be slaughtered by a sword with two mouths. And as the story was being recounted to Israel, they're catching all of this. You can, you can picture like grandparents sitting around a fire telling their grandkids about the great savior, Ehud, and they're laughing about this humor in the story, about this fat king. So Ehud gives a tribute to Eglon. He starts to walk away. He turns around and says, hey, I have a secret message for you. Eglon is also stupid because he says, everybody out. He sends his guards out. He sends them out. And then Ehud gets closer and he says, it's, a, it's actually a secret message from God. And Eglon stands up. You just picture this very overweight king standing up out of his throne, right? And he's no idea what's about to happen. He thinks he's got some special message from God coming his way. You can feel the suspense. Ehud approaches the king. I have a message from God for you. And then it happens. Lightning fast. Ehud, the left-handed guy, reaches to his right thigh, takes his self-made weapon out, the double-mouthed sword, thrusts it into his belly, and it goes so deep, the dude is so large that it just falls over the hilt, and he dies, and all of his insides spill out all over the ground. That's what, that's what happened, and the dung came out. And then he escapes. He gets out. He locks the doors first, and then he gets out. He, he, he leaves, and then the guards are like, oh, he must be relieving himself. It, it must have smelled bad for them to assume that, I guess. So they're like, oh, no, okay. <laughs> this is... And then they're like, this is taking it forever. Like, what? what's going on? And they're embarrassed. They wait so long, they're embarrassed. And they go, and they unlock the doors, and there he's dead. And they can't find Ehud anywhere. So Ehud goes back, blows the trumpets, gathers up Israel and says, come with me. God has given us the victory. And they go, they follow, and they win. And God delivers Israel. Okay, look, I warned you guys at the start and last week that each of these stories has to be interpreted in line with the introduction. Now, you can see where we could go crazy with motivational application and all this stuff, but we're, we're going to try our best to be faithful to God's word, to the text, and interpret it based on Scripture. Okay? So here, here are some, uh, some of the wild applications of this passage. I incorrect things. People have problems with this because of its violent nature. There are people who will apologize for this, and they'll say, I don't know how this got in here, but here's what it means. It's allegory. It's allegory. It's not real. There's no murder here. It, you know, the sword, the double-edged sword, it's the sword of the Spirit, okay? And it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So Ehud had this message, this literal vocal message that was convicting to the king, and it was as if it stabbed him and he died because it was so convicting. That's what happened. Obviously, that's not true because of the detail we have. We don't, that doesn't need to say that if that's actually what's going on, okay? So they'll try to say that, and then they'll try to say, oh, it's, it's a moral story. They'll, they'll moralize the story, and they'll actually say, you should not be like Ehud. Even though in the New Testament, the judges are praised for their faith. It's just not consistent with Scripture. They'll say, don't be like Ehud. He's taking revenge. He was taking things into his own hands, and uh, don't do that. Don't be vengeful. 
Or they'll say, don't be like the stupid king who left himself alone. You need friends. You need Christian fellowship. You need these things in your life, or it could be, you know, it could be bad, which is true. You need Christian friends, of course, but that's not what the text is saying. So let's look at this passage through the lens that we've already established. God's sovereign activity with his people. God is the hero. God raises the judge. God saves Israel in their unfaithfulness. Israel is in a giant mess. They're being ruled over by this evil, fat king bringing tributes to him. Who knows how often they're having to go to him and bring this tribute to him. We don't even know what it is. It could be a bunch of money. It could be food. I don't know. Probably food, but who knows? They're surrounded by idolatry. They're, they're oppressed. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that, I don't think. <laughs> they're oppressed by their enemies, and it's all because of their own unfaithfulness. I want you to see that. They're in the situation because of their unfaithfulness. God warned them, if you do this, if you chase after these gods, what am I going to do? I'm going to give you to them. And they did, so he was faithful. They're in a big mess because they created the mess. God gets involved in the mess. You see that? He does something about it. He involves himself in the mess that they created. He cleans it up. He doesn't wait for Israel to break out the Clorox and start cleaning themselves up before he says, oh, okay, I can do something about this now. In the middle of their mess, in the middle of the nonsense, in the middle of their disobedience and unfaithfulness, he initiates help. Because he hates to see his people oppressed. So he goes in and he cleans up the mess. That's the God that we serve. You understand? That is the sovereign God that we serve. That is the character of our God. A sovereign God who rules his people with love, with compassion, who never leaves his people alone. I mean, all throughout Scripture... I will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 94, 14. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Now, the truth about life is that it gets messy. It's just true. Your life gets messy. My life is, it gets messy. And maybe, just like Israel, your life is a mess because of your own sin. Maybe, Maybe you have a bad habit. Maybe you're addicted to lying. Maybe you just can't stop lying. And people are starting to find out that you're just a liar. And people aren't trusting you anymore. Your life is just a mess because you can't stop lying. Maybe you're an arrogant person. And maybe people don't want to be around you because of your arrogance. Maybe you just have a bad attitude. And you're hateful. You're not kind to people. I don't know. Whatever it could be. Maybe your life is just, you're just, it's just a mess because of your own sin. Your own wrongdoing. Maybe your impurity has left you feeling broken and hopeless. Maybe you're walking through an extremely difficult family situation. Maybe you're facing some kind of emotional trauma or your, your heart is heavy with grief or you're depressed and you're filled with sorrow or you're overwhelmed with temptation for something and you can't seem to say no to this temptation. Whatever the situation, whatever the mess, whether it's caused by you or someone in your life has hurt you. Whatever is going on, God is with you. 
And he is there to help you and to bring you peace. God gets involved in your life. No matter how messy it is. No matter how broken you feel. He gets involved. He's a sovereign God. He's compassionate. And he is involved with his people. So whatever the situation is, you just need to turn to him. You need to repent of your sin. You need to stop relying on your own strength. You need to confess your dependence on him. Turn to God for peace. Throw yourself before God in prayer. And he will bring you peace. You need need to do that. And if you've put your trust in Jesus, if you have put your trust in Christ, God's promise to you is that he will remain faithful to you forever. So he's sovereign God. And he loves his people enough to get involved. He never says, go clean yourself up and then I'll do something about this. Before Noah was born, um, Noah is my son, for those of you that don't know. Um, before he was born, I always had this fear of how I would react when he did something disgusting. Um, I have a weak stomach. I can't handle it when people around me are puking. <laughs> so please don't do that around me. Um, like, here's an example. Uh, I played high school football, and I, w- I became a starter my junior year. Every single game, junior year, all the way through the end of my senior year, I puked because I got so nervous. I, I don't know. I just, I just have, it's weak. I don't know. I'm sorry. I can't handle puke. I can't handle snot. I can't handle anything gross like that. I just don't like it. Blood, for some reason, not, it's fine. But all that other stuff, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. Um, so I always wondered how I would handle myself as a father. I, had, I have a, a brother much younger than me. He was born when I was 15, so I like watched him go through his toddler phase, and he would do so many things at the dinner table that I was like, like, please, I don't, I don't want to sit here. Anyways, I would just wonder, how am I going to, when I'm a dad, how am I going to react? What am I going to do? When Noah was born, uh, Amber had some complications, and she, the doctors said, like, you, ha- you, you have to stay in the bed. And you're not going to really be able to help with Noah much besides feeding him. So I was like, all right, here it is. (laughs) I I have to do as much as I can possibly do right now. Like, I remember thinking to myself, like, it's time to be a man. Like, (laughs) it's time to step it up. Whatever happens with this baby, like, you got to take care of it. And I was like, oh, man, what is going to happen? Maybe you already knew this, but I didn't, and Amber probably warned me, but I didn't pay attention. Um, When babies are, when newborn babies, when newborn babies poop, just just be clear, it looks not normal. (laughs) It's, it is gross. You listening, Taylor? (laughs) It's, it's gross. It's, um, it's this thick, like, Jet, jet black, tar-like substance. 
It's gross. <laughs> so I remember the nurse was like, oh, who's going who's gonna to be the first one to change his diaper? And Amber, she can't. She physically can't. And so I'm like, okay, here it goes. And I, like, walk over to where the nurse is, and she's going to, like, I had never changed a diaper before. So she's teaching me how to do it, and opens it up, and it's there. And I, I, I surprised myself. I was fine. And I cleaned him up, and I changed the diaper. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> That's, I, 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 I thought I was going to pass out or something. I don't, I don't know. I thought I wasn't, but it was fine. <laughs> um, also, Noah had really bad acid reflux up until he was like four months old. So he would spit up all the time. <laughs> all the time. And uh, he was like a day old. I mean, he was brand new baby in the hospital, and he just kept spitting up. And we were like, what's going on? We don't know. So like, we just had to be ready at any moment if we were holding him to like put him up and just to accept that you're going to get gross spit up all over you. And so I just remember like being, okay, like this is going to happen at some point. And he starts to like, spit up, and he's coughing, and it was scary because he would start to choke on it, so you're freaking out because you're like, don't choke, and so you just turn him over on yourself and pat his back, and it just gets all over you. I'm talking like all down your shirt, and to my surprise, I was okay. I was fine, and I remember even having a, a desire when he was choking on his spit up to, to help him. I didn't, in the moment, I didn't care how gross it was or what got on me because he's my son, and I love him, and I want him to be okay, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to help him. I'm going to get involved in the mess, no matter how disgusting the mess is, because it's gross. I want you to imagine if, if, I, uh, if, if I gave Noah, when he was a day old, the baby wipe, and I said, okay, clean yourself up. You can handle this. Or if he's laying down, choking on his spit up, and I'm like, roll over. You got it. You can do it. And I didn't intervene, and I didn't involve myself in his mess. You have to do that with babies, or they can't survive. Okay, look, my point in all of this is to say, as a father, it didn't matter to me how gross, and it really still doesn't matter. He's a year and almost, how old is he, 15 months, 16 months, something like that? Yep, okay. Um, it doesn't matter how gross something is. Because he's my son and because I, I love him so much, I'm going to involve myself. If it's not, I'm going to help him. Like, you get the point. God is a loving father who loves his people dearly. And he gets involved in your mess. You understand? He doesn't say, clean yourself up before you come to me. He doesn't even say, like, I told you so. You understand? When you look at what he's doing for the Israelites here, he says, you caused the mess, but I'm going to get involved and I'm, I'm going to clean it up because I love you and because I'm faithful towards you. So look, whatever you're walking through, whatever is going on in your life, God gets involved. He's involved in your life. So you just need to Turn to him in everything and understand that he loves you and he cares for you and he's with you. And look, yeah, we'll leave it there.
So the, the tragedy of these verses is that Israel continues to need saving even after Shamgar, verse 31, the, the man's man. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. We don't have a lot about Shamgar. We've got more questions and answers. We don't have any mention of Israel's evil or the uh, oppression of when the Philistines started or anything about Israel's mess. Uh, Shamgar might have even been a Canaanite. There's a possibility that he wasn't even an Israelite because he doesn't have an Israelite name. But he saved Israel with an ox goad. An ox goad is like a spear. It's like an eight-foot-long weapon with like a sharp metal point, and they used it with their cattle. He took one of those things, and he slaughtered all these Philistines to save Israel. But even after that, Israel kept sinning. These first three judges are not perfect. While they rescue Israel from the oppressors, they do not rescue them from the biggest threat. And the biggest threat there is, is sin. These judges do not bring them final rescue from their sin. I want you to look at point number three. Here it is. You need to trust the perfect judge to free you from sin. Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. He is the perfect Savior. The one that Israel was waiting on for all of those years. The one who came, who lived perfectly. God came, he lived a perfect life. He died the death that you and I deserve. He took the wrath of God on his shoulders. Rose again on the third day, defeating death, defeating hell forever. So that you and I can put our trust in him and have a relationship with God the Father. All of these judges, yeah, they're helping Israel. They're rescuing Israel, but they are not perfect judges. Jesus Christ is the perfect judge, and you need to put your trust in him. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, then you are still under sin. You are held by sin's power. And the only way to be freed from the power of sin is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. So it's my prayer that, that you've done that. And listen, I, I think I've said this a lot, but like, if, if you have questions, if you're not sure, if you have doubts, go to small group and talk to your leaders about it. Come find me and let's talk about it. Let's pray together. Pray with your leaders. You're never going to earn it. You're not good enough. You understand? Jesus, he earned it. You put your trust in Jesus. That's the only way. You need to repent of your sin. You need to put your faith in Jesus. I want you to see God's compassion. God's compassion for his people through these first three judges. And ultimately, it culminates in the compassion that he showed through the perfect Savior, Jesus, coming, living, dying for you. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you for being compassionate. But I pray that we would understand that you are sovereign and you are compassionate and you love us dearly. God, I pray that if anyone has not put their trust in you, that they would do so tonight. That we would all understand that you are sovereign and good and that you are a good and loving father. Help us to live in light of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.